Well, hello, everyone. It's good to be with you guys this after this evening. Um, excited to be here with you, and you know, thank you for joining us, all of you who are online as well. I know everything out there is still strange. It's more normal than it was, but we're definitely not back to the way things always have been. Um, so I'd just like to start today by, if you guys would just pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would just be with me as I speak up here this evening. Pray that you will put your words in my mouth and that you will help us all, just give us ears that we might understand. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, I'm a little bit nervous up here, but we're, we're going to go with it. So, um, so we're going to start off this evening by introducing a man named Michael King. It's a name that I wasn't familiar with until I started preparing for this sermon, but it's a name that I'd like to help all of you be familiar with while we reflect on what it means to be a father. So let me give you a little bit of his background. Michael King was born into poverty in western Georgia on the verge of the Great Depression, where his father worked on a farm. He stood in line to get bread with his family, went to a school which had no books, materials, or blackboards, but he loved going anyway. Growing up in rural Georgia in the midst of poverty, Michael saw lots of hardship and injustice even within his own family. On one occasion, he even had to stop his drunken father from beating his own mother. To ease the harsh tone of farm life, his mother took him and his siblings to a local church. As a boy, Michael saw people being mistreated, and he was intent on mistreating those people when he grew up. But his mother stepped in and insisted that he hate no man. While going to church, he grew to respect the few preachers who were willing to speak out about the brutality and injustice that Michael saw going on, in spite of the risk they ran of angering those powerful people around them. Due to his admiration of these ministers, Michael decided that he was going to follow in their footsteps and become a minister. So he moved to Atlanta, where a local pastor named A.D. Williams took him in under his wing and encouraged him to continue his education. In spite of his limited education, which was likely equivalent to about a third grade education, he studied hard at a preparatory school and he was admitted to Morehouse College. During college, he ended up marrying A.D. Williams' daughter and had three children with the youngest being born only a month after graduating. This was a busy, committed man. A year later, his father-in-law passed away, and he was chosen to follow him as his church's next pastor. So what exactly does it mean to be a father? So when I look at it, two things really jump out at me. First, to be a father, you must have children. And second, to be a father, your children must have a mother. That's just kind of the way it works. So that doesn't mean, though, that that's all God's calling us to as fathers. Now, before I go too far, I want to acknowledge that we live in a lost and broken world which has been racked by sin. Children may grow up either never knowing their father or feeling pain, rejection, and trauma when they think of their father. When thinking of marriage, women may be left in despair. They may have been hurt so badly by men in their life they can't even bear to think of it. Men may be left with shame over failures from their past or in mourning over children they were never able to have. But that leaves us with the question, 
What does God expect fatherhood to look like? God makes it pretty clear that men are called to be actively involved in their families. So let's take a look at what God says about being a husband. So in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So that's it. I mean, that's all it takes to be a good husband. All we have to do is sacrifice ourselves just as Jesus sacrificed himself. Really, though, this is tough. This is telling us that our relationship with our wives represents what Christ is like towards his church. How do we want God to treat us? Do we want him, do we want him to threaten to dump us when things get tough? Isn't that what happens in some relationships when things get rocky? The word divorce enters conversations in anger. Is that how we view Christ's love for us? He's ready to ditch us as soon as the going gets tough? Unfortunately, this is how God's people, the Israelites, represented him time after time. When they chose to abandon him for the false gods, the idols of the countries around them. So what does Ephesians tell us that loving our wives should look like? It tells us that we need to give up ourselves. Your relationship is not about you. You know the typical picture of the American male on his recliner with his beverage of choice next to him? That would be the exact opposite of what we're talking about. That would be a picture of having the world at your beck and call. Really, it's not about you. It's not about me. So. Remember, our marriages are meant to reflect Christ and the church. If it's all about you, you've got it all wrong. What does a bride do on her wedding day? She does everything she can to look her best. Hours, days, weeks, months are spent preparing for it. These verses are telling us that we should do all we can to help our wives be the best they can be. What can we do to help them become more like Christ? How can we support them? Should anything be too much to ask? Are we going to make things more difficult for them? Of course not. We're going to do all we can to help them achieve their goals. Let's be real for a minute. I'm sure you're all familiar with the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? So if we're really living out these verses, this isn't something we're going to have to worry about. If we're doing all we can to support our wives all the time, there shouldn't be a constant fear of incurring her wrath. If we're making time in life for things that we enjoy, and that's not a bad thing, 
then shouldn't we also be intentionally making time for doing things that our wife enjoys? And yes, this might mean getting dressed up and going to a play or a concert, or playing a game as a family, or preparing dinner with her, or some other thing that is not your preference. It doesn't have to be earth-shaking, but it does need to be something that communicates to her that you care, that you're thinking about her, and that she matters to you. Does that mean that you don't have any needs or desires? Of course not. This is a relationship, and those always have to be two-way streets if they're working correctly. But we're not talking about what God expects from your wives today, are we? Really, though, this is a serious calling from God. He's telling us that our marriages show the world something about the way Christ loves and values the church. What is my marriage telling the world about Christ? What is your marriage telling the world? You guys ready for another tough one? In Colossians 3.19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. In case you missed it, the verse does not include unless you're really ticked off. So can I get a show of hands? Who, who here doesn't get frustrated with their spouse? Oh, we have a taker. All right. Well, I'm guessing you've been married for a little while, but apparently not long enough. <laughs> At some point, the honeymoon stage is going to be over, and you're going to get to experience what this is actually like. <laughs> what? <laughs> so personally... I, I used to think that I was a really laid-back person, and I didn't have any anger issues. Well, 16 years, four kids, and being further along in my career, I can see how little I knew then. Life comes at you fast. There are frustrations in life, and anger flares, especially toward those that you love and interact with the most. Your spouse is in your life all the time, and it's easy to take those frustrations on, out on them instead of taking them to God. In our relationship, we need to take step, a step back to see where they look the way that God desires them to and where they don't. If your experience has been completely different from what we've discussed here, I want you to be encouraged. We are in the hands of a loving God, of a God who desires to do whatever it takes to reach you exactly where you are. He sees you where you are. He knows your hurt, your pain, and he desires to comfort you and help you know what his love is really like. If there are areas that we don't measure up to God's standard, we need to prayerfully approach God and ask him to help us reset. It's never too late. You have never strayed so far that God's love cannot reach you where you are. So what does God expect being a father to your children to look like? Looking through God's word, I see several things laid out. So a father should be thankful. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. A father should be righteous. Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are the children after them. 3 John 1.4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. A father should be a leader. Joshua 24.15 says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. 
Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. A father should be encouraging. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteousness, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. A father should teach his children. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. A father should discipline his children without making them bitter and resentful. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Colossians 3, 21 tells us that father, says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So we must set an example for our children. Throughout Scripture, there are over a thousand references to God as our Father. This means that as earthly fathers, we are an example to the world, but especially to our children, of what God is like. This is a truly humbling and, quite frankly, terrifying prospect. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let's return to Michael for a minute. In 1934, he ended up attending the World Baptist Alliance in Berlin, Germany, with 10 other ministers. On the way, he stopped and viewed historic sites in Palestine of the Holy Land, and while in Germany, he viewed both the land of the Reformation and the rise of Nazism only a year after Hitler rose to power. Seeing the history of Jesus and the church, along with seeing the anti-Semitism and hatred of the Nazis, made an impression on Michael that he would never forget. When he returned, he had a new zeal both for helping people see the love of Jesus and removing the stench of discrimination and injustice. He ended up becoming a leader in his community due to his powerful preaching and his unwillingness to turn a blind eye to injustice, likely remembering the brutal treatment of the Jews during his visit to Germany. In Michael, his children saw a leader of the community who tried desperately to walk before them and teach them the right ways together with his wife. He was determined to not be bitter and to carry no hate in his heart regardless of how others might treat both him and those around him. He said, I was taught to love and always tried to love my wife, my children, and those around me. David Jeremiah said, a girl's father is the first man in her life and probably the most influential. So what determines the type of example a father sets? Is it determined based on what he saw in his father? Is there a point in time where he experiences a single event or makes a single decision which shapes his destiny? Was it faded all along and outside of his control? I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the song Slow Fade by Casting Crowns, but 
I want to share a verse with you, and don't worry, I'm not going to try and sing it. It goes, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. I experience tremendous conviction every time I hear this song. Where are the choices that I make every day taking me? They are shaping the man, the Christian, that I will become. Some of these things might seem inconsequential at the time, and if they stood alone, they would be. Do I really need that fourth slice of pizza? One slice of pizza isn't going to make a difference, but if it starts or continues a lifestyle that which displays gluttony or a lack of self-control, then it will make a difference. Should I watch that third episode of the show that I've been binging on Netflix, or should I spend my time with my children? Half an hour won't make that big, that big of a difference in the grand scheme of things. Should I go have a drink with my friends again? One drink never hurt anyone. You know, I really enjoy talking to that woman at work. We should do lunch together sometime. I, th I think she might understand me better than my wife does. Winston Churchill said, never give in, never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Churchill's words were referring to World War II, of course, but they are no less true for us today. The choices that we make today and the example that we set for our children influence the men and women that they will become in the future. We reflect our Heavenly Father. How do we want our children to view God? Even though Michael's father did not represent our Heavenly Father well in his life, someone else stepped into that void. Someone else accepted him into his family and showed him what it meant to be a man of God. This man helped shape his life and led him to be the type of father for his children that he didn't see growing up. What if you're not happy with where you are today? What if you've made choices which have led you down a path that you never wanted to take? I have one word for you. Reset. Don't give up. I assure you, our Heavenly Father has not given up on you. You are his beloved child, and he longs for you to turn and run into his arms. The choices that you made yesterday might have contributed to your circumstances today. But if so, then today is the day for you to reset. Make choices today which will make the life your children and those around you see be a story of redemption. A father should show compassion and love to his children. In Luke 15, we find what is typically called the story of the prodigal son. A few months ago, Pastor Chris referred to the story as the story of the loving father, and I think he's absolutely right. In this story, a man had two sons, and his youngest son demanded his share of the inheritance, promptly ran off and blew it all on drinking, partying, 
and everything which would grieve his father's heart. Eventually, the money ran out, and he found himself homeless, living without a roof over his head, and craving even the food he saw the animals around him eating. Finally, he hit rock bottom and realized how much better his father's servants had had it than he did, and he figured he might as well swallow what was left of his pride and go back and work on his father's farm. In Luke 15, 20 through 24, we see what, how his father responded. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran for his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a beautiful picture of God's unrelenting love for his children. In spite of his son rejecting him and acting as though he was as good as dead, this father doesn't just allow him to return and work on the farm. He has been waiting for him, watching for him, and he runs to him while he's still a half mile down the road. He holds nothing back, but instead throws a party to celebrate the restoration of their relationship. Absolutely nothing his son has done merits the celebration. It's quite the opposite. Is this reflected in the way that we love and accept our children? Or is it dependent on how our children have treated us or the way that they performed? Here's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. on his family. It is quite easy for me to think of a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central and lovely relationships were ever-present. Oh, that my children would say such a thing about our family when they're grown, that I would reflect God's love in such a way. Well, what about discipline? Discipline and love frequently feel like opposite ends of the spectrum, but we're, cold, we're called to hold them in tension. A parent who doesn't discipline their child, but pampers them and gives them everything they want without holding them responsible for their actions doesn't reflect God well either. What they tend to get is children who are out of control, who have no respect for authority, but have an attitude which expects the world to cater to their every whim, and they respond with outrage when it doesn't happen. Is this what we're looking for? Is this how God treats his children? Of course not. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. However, discipline cannot be our focus. Discipline is meant to help children and us learn to enter the narrow gate and follow the straight path. April and I read a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart when our children were still young, and it's heavily influenced the way we think about parenting. Let me share an excerpt from it. Most of us spend an enormous amount of energy in controlling and constraining behavior. To the degree and extent to which our focus is on behavior, we miss the heart. When parenting short circuits to behavior, 
we miss the opportunity to help our kids understand that straying behavior displays a straying heart. Our kids, and us, are always serving something, either God or a substitute for God, an idol of the heart. When we miss the heart, we miss the gospel. If the problem with children is deeper than inappropriate behavior, if the problem is the overflow of the heart, then the need for grace is established. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died as an infinite sacrifice so that children and their parents can be forgiven, transformed, liberated, and empowered to love God and love others. You see, the temptation when our children are acting out is to crack down and eliminate the inconvenience, to train the behavior so they won't be disruptive in the future. But this misses the point. What is the goal of parenting? To raise children who follow after God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. If we focus on their behavior and we don't address the sin in their hearts, we may win the battle, but we risk losing the war. This is something General Douglas MacArthur understood when raising children. He said, by profession, I'm a soldier, and I take great pride in that fact. But I am also prouder, infinitely prouder, to be a father. A soldier destroys in order to build. The father only builds. He never destroys. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, we're told, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. If this applies to all that we do in life, then it certainly applies to how we parent. So how does all of this apply to our story about Michael? Well, following his time in Germany, Michael followed a tradition laid out many times in the Bible, and he changed his name to reflect the metamorphosis he went through as a result of his trip to the, to the Holy Land and the Reformation of the Church. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Saul's name was changed to Paul. Along those same lines, Michael King adopted the name Martin Luther King Sr. and changed the name of his eldest son from Michael Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr. This preacher who grew up in abject poverty in western Georgia in the midst of the Great Depression found a man who took him under his wing and treated him like his own son. He went on to be, who went on to become one of the leaders of the civil rights movement and he raised a son who has gone down in history as the greatest champion of the civil rights movement our country has ever seen. Let's revisit that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. It's quite easy for me to think of a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central and relationships were ever present. As a young boy, Michael King was determined to hate the white man for the injustice and discrimination that he faced. But as a man, he modeled such a loving relationship that his son went on to have such a love for those who hated him that he would say, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. 
Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. But this might not be where we are today. If not, how do we get there? In Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We need a new heart of flesh. We need a heart that allows us to love as God loves us. We need a heart that longs with all our being to reflect what God is like to a lost and hurting world. If you're not sure what all this means, what it looks like to have a relationship with a loving God today, but you, know, but you want to know more, please reach out. I think we have people up here, we will have people up here who would love to pray with you, who would love to talk about it. If you're online, please let us know in the comments. Send us a private message, email the church, however you're most comfortable. But there is a God who loves you, who wants you to know, to experience his love. If that's you, the path is laid before your feet. All you have to do is start down it. If you only take one thing from this message, this is what I would like it to be. There's no higher calling on our lives than to be a father and a husband. In living out these two roles, we reflect God's image to a watching world, whether we intend to or not. What will the world say because of, about God because of your life?